you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 20 through 26. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for these sweet and precious promises that we have from the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage. We thank you that you have made us his servants by your grace. What a privilege we have. Lord, I pray that as we meditate upon what that means today and we think about what it means to follow Christ, Lord, that you would work in our hearts to conform us to his image to give us the strength and grace that we need to take up our crosses daily and follow him to the path of glory. So, Father, we ask that you would come, that you would work through your word, drawing our eyes to Jesus, that we may see him. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again today. Well, the older I get, the more I realize that life is predictably unpredictable. No matter how often we are surprised by what comes around the corner, we still have no idea what is around the next corner. And often, it is another surprise. And this week was a reminder of that for me. I mean, the truth is, sometimes you just want things to go well. A smooth path without any surprises, but more often than not, it doesn't seem to be the case. And the truth is, the truth that we have to come back to and remind ourselves of often is that it is not the case by God's design. God is sovereign over these lives that we are living. And he calls us to walk out our faith in Christ and our trust in his goodness in a world that is full of surprises and disappointments and hardships and sufferings. No matter what they may be or what we may pass through, none of it is a surprise to God. None of it is outside of his decree. And none of it is without purpose in the lives of his people. Praise God for that. You know, one of the challenges I have found 
been preaching through the Gospel of John, is how to keep things fresh, how to avoid repetition. Because one of the things that John does in his writings, both in his, in his Gospel and in his epistles, is that he, he works in a, a cyclical fashion. He, he covers themes and ideas at one point, and then eventually he, he circles back to those same themes and ideas, drawing them out from a different angle or from a wider perspective or, or building upon them. And in some cases, I, ha- I have actually found that to be a real challenge just from a preaching standpoint. However, as time has gone on, I'm, I'm finding the cyclical nature to actually be very helpful to my soul for one very primary reason, because we need reminders. The truth is, life is cyclical, predictably unpredictable. And often we go through things that, even though we've been through something like it before, we still need to be reminded of what is true. The fact is, we are a leaky people, and we need to be filled up often with the same truth that we may think we already know, but we're struggling to apply to our hearts and whatever we're walking through. Today's passage is one of those passages for me. In in some ways, it's basic Christian truth that we have covered repeatedly, but in reality, it is ultimate truth that our hearts never outgrow the need of. This is a passage that reminds us that Suffering is normative in the Christian life by God's paradoxical design. It is a a part of the Calvary road that we are walking, but its end is glory, as we will see. As we look at this today, we're going to see the paradox of God's economy in this passage applied in two different ways. First, as it is established in the life of Christ, by the life of Christ, and then second, as it is carried out in the life of the believer. And as we will see, God's economy functions very differently than ours, and very differently than the way we naturally think. Up is down, and down is up. And because we are so bent on seeing things a certain way, we, we have to be repeatedly reminded of these things, confronted with how things actually work in God's kingdom. But when you understand this, it becomes fuel for the journey. When life is hard and you're feeling the effects of sin and and suffering in this world, there are reminders and promises here in in this passage that will carry you through. So let's let's look at this, and let's, let's start by looking at how John sets this up in verse 20. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now just by way of reminder, We have just come through Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. News had spread throughout the city, and and the great crowd of people who had made their pilgrimage in there for that last Passover of Jesus' life 
News had spread that Jesus had raised the dead, that Lazarus had come forth from the tomb, and now he was on his way into town. The crowd had rushed out to welcome him to cries of Hosanna, quoting Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they were declaring Jesus to be their king. Jesus surprisingly embraced their praise, and he did so by fulfilling the great prophecy from Zechariah 9 regarding the king who comes riding in on the colt of a donkey, which is exactly what he did. And as a result of all this, the Pharisees are feeling like they are losing control and their plans are falling apart. How can they arrest this man now with everyone praising him? Look back at what they said in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They are in a panic. The world has gone after him. That was an obvious exaggeration, but from their vantage point, it is most certainly how things felt. The streets had been lined with thousands upon thousands praising and welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. It was not just a small group of Jesus sympathizers. Jesus was the center of everyone's attention. But John uses their words in ironic fashion to show that, yes, actually, the world is going after him. And he does that by immediately bringing in this story of these Greeks, these Gentiles who are looking for Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly when this happened. He, he doesn't tell us. Was it the same day? Was it the next day? A couple days after his arrival? It's not exactly clear. But John wants you to see this on the heels of this comment from the Pharisees that in that the world, the nations, actually begin to go after Jesus. Now, why these Greeks went to Philip is not exactly clear. Some commentators speculate uh, that John mentions Philip is from Bethsaida because that was near the Decapolis, which is Gentile territory, and that may well be where these Greeks are from. And so perhaps they approached the one who is most familiar with their territory and their culture and their language. Maybe. That's plausible. But Philip is not exactly sure what to do with this. And so he goes to Andrew. And then the two of them take this to Jesus. But in this, you have a lot of similar themes and ideas coming out that we saw with Jesus' first interaction with his disciples back in chapter 1. If you remember there, they were told by John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then these men start to seek Jesus. And Jesus begins by beckoning them to come and see. Come and see who I am. And then Jesus issued his call to discipleship, specifically to Philip, when he said, follow me, which he will bring up in this context here in a minute. But all of these same themes were there when Jesus first came to his own people and calling out his own disciples. 
And, and John is bringing them back up in this short encounter. But it's all centered on this desire on the parts of these Gentiles, these Greeks, to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And that desire is the right desire. There's a reason that Jesus began this, began with his disciples by beckoning him, them to come and see. And then he said to Nathanael, you're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Come and see. And then the, the, the way that John even framed this entire book in the prologue was, was by what he has seen in, in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This book is about what the Apostle John saw. And yet, the total fullness of that, of truly seeing Jesus, is still yet to come. And it's what Jesus has been working towards. It's actually His desire for His people that we see Him truly and fully. This is why He's going to pray in John 17. Father, I desire that they also, whom You have given Me, may be with Me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, this whole book is about seeing Jesus. That's what it's about. It's what John was laboring for in his writing because it's what Jesus was laboring for with his life, that we may see him rightly and truly. And one day, we will fully that's where it's all going. As John said in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. That's coming. That's what the Christian life is truly all about. Seeing Jesus. And now... Here at the end of his life, even though he has been laboring among his own people, the Jews, it's actually some Gentiles who come forward and express the right desire. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's right. And this whole thing, this, this whole event of these Greeks showing up with this Desire serves actually as a kind of divine trigger, if you will. The world is now coming after Christ, and this marks the arrival of the hour of His glory. The arrival of the hour that is going to make it possible for the world to see Jesus. But it comes in a way that no one would expect, because it comes in paradoxical fashion. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Throughout this book, we have been building towards this hour. It started with Jesus' first miracle and Him telling His mother that His hour had not yet come. 
And then he told the woman at the well that an hour is coming when you will worship not on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but you will worship in spirit and truth. And then repeatedly we saw the authorities try to capture Christ before his time, but they could not. And the only reason that John gave was that his hour had not yet come. But now, the hour has come. And Jesus announces the arrival of this hour that has been looming the entire time. Now the question is, who is Jesus talking to here? Is this an answer to the Greeks? Or to Philip and Andrew? Or is there a larger audience that he addresses in response to the news that they brought, or to the question they brought? I actually believe it's the latter, because you will see the crowd brought back in in verse 29 and following. It appears that this Gentile request to see Jesus marks the arrival of the hour of his glorification, and then he turns and announces that to the crowd that is still thronging around him. And for many who would hear this, these would have been the words that they were hoping for. It's time for him to be glorified. The hour of his glory has come. It's time for him to enter into glory. And no doubt on the heels of the triumphal entry, this would have been understood to mean that it is time for him to enter into his kingly role. I mean, he has the favor of the people. The nation is awestruck with what he can do. The power of allegiance has shifted away from the Jewish authorities and onto him. This is his chance to take the throne and begin a revolution with everybody behind him. But that's not at all what he means. And the next words would likely have been incredibly baffling to his audience. Look what he says, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, we all have a semblance of an idea of what he's talking about here because we know the rest of the story. But can you imagine how puzzling this would have been to the original audience? He just claimed that the, the hour of his glory has come, and immediately he's talking about a seed needing to die in order to bring forth fruit. No doubt this would have set people back on their heels. Because they do not understand that in God's economy, things function very differently. And when Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, He is actually directly and paradoxically speaking about His death. Because as we've seen all along, the path to glory is through the cross. The lifting up of His exaltation begins with the lifting up on the cross. I think sometimes we who hear the gospel all the time and treasure these truths forget how backwards this truly is. I mean, in what other context does victory come through death and defeat? 
When we think of victory in the sports arena, we think of the team or the individual who beat everyone else. But when it comes to war, victory and glory comes by being the conqueror, not the conquered. You typically don't ascribe victory to the army with the most dead bodies left in the field. Death means defeat. And we even speak like this in medical terms, as a euphemism. When somebody dies from cancer or some disease, it's, it's common to hear somebody say they lost their battle with cancer, meaning they, they died. They lost. Cancer defeated them. And death was the final marker of that reality. In no context in our world do we see death and defeat as being glory and victory except in God's economy, except in the gospel. Because the way the Father designed the mission of the Son was that it would end in glory by means of His death. Without His death, there there is no glory. Without His death, there is no redemption. Without His death, there is no salvation. Without His death, there is no resurrection. Without His death, there is no ascension. Without His death, there is no victory. Without His death, nothing is accomplished. It is all contingent upon His death. It's all very ironically hanging on His apparent defeat. Which is why He says, using language very familiar to the culture of the day in an agricultural society, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. A seed must go into the ground and die in order to fulfill its purpose. The outer shell must split and wither away in order to bring forth new life. If it does not, it just remains alone, a seed that has accomplished nothing in this world. And it is nothing more than that. It must die in order to bring forth the harvest. And in the exact same way, Christ must die in order to bring forth God's harvest. Because God's harvest, God's kingdom, is a harvest of sinners like you and me. Praise God. A kingdom made up of redeemed sinners, ruled and purchased by a crucified Messiah. And the only way to bring forth that harvest is to go to the cross and pay their penalty to die on their behalf, to procure their forgiveness, to purchase their new hearts, to purchase their new lives, to purchase their new eyes so that they can see, so that we can see and understand the glory of who Christ is. And that's exactly what He did for all who believe. For all who believe. No matter their background or lineage or status in this world, The harvest is for all who believe. 
Remember, he says this in response to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world, those not a part of the chosen nation of Israel coming with a desire to see him. And the only way that they can actually see him, the only way that can actually happen in their lives is if he dies for them. As he fulfills his role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's exactly what he has done. And for you who have come to Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, you who see his glory and hold him to be more precious than anything else in the sin-cursed world, the only reason you can see is because he died for you. Your faith is a product of his death. Your new heart and new life is a product of the harvest for which he died. Like a seed that's gone into the ground and springs forth new life. But not only did he accomplish that, but it was also his own path to glory. This was his path to become king. Not just a, a, a mere king of the Jews as they desired, but the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And God exalted him as the God-man, Jesus Christ, to this place of honor for all of eternity because of the obedience that he displayed in the laying down of his life. This is what Philippians 2 is all about. God's exaltation of His Son due to His obedience to the Father. Listen again to Paul's words from that beautiful Christ hymn. Philippians 2.5 Though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That was his path to glory. Jesus came knowing that this was the path that the Father had set before him. He came to die, glory through suffering. He knew he was going to pass through more agony and suffering than what we can even comprehend. And he did that not only by enduring the cruel torture of the Romans at the rejection and demands of his own people, but more than all that, by bearing the wrath of God upon himself. And that agonizing reality that he alone would bear the fearsome wrath of Almighty God against our sin has been in the back of his mind the entire time. 
knowing that it is coming. The hour is coming when he will have to walk through this. And now it is here. The hour has now come. But in carrying this out, Jesus was walking out not only his his own path to glory, but the path to be followed as well. See, the Christian life is just as much a paradox as was his path to glory. Because the Christian life is apprehended through death. Look at how he applies this to the Christian life. Look what he says, verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Again, you can only imagine how bizarre this must have sounded to his original audience. In many ways, this this probably all just sounded like a riddle. He's talking about the hour of his glory, and then he's talking about how a seed must die to bear fruit, and now he's saying whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Christian life. This is a summons to discipleship, to what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. If you've had it in your head that Christianity is just about adding Jesus to your life or just acknowledging his existence, but it doesn't really make any any real demands upon you, then you have missed it because that's not it. Christianity is Christ calling his followers to come and die. To die to sin, to die to self, to die to this world, to die to your own desires, and to live to Christ. It's a death march. That's why Jesus uses this language. Now, when he uses the language of love contrasted with hate in this context, he's not talking about how you emotionally feel about life. He's not advocating self-hatred rooted in disappointment or resentment or anything like that, nor is he endorsing the life of an emo, if that's still a thing. That was a thing in my day. Just drifting around, wearing all black, and talking about how much you hate life and you hate everything else along with it. Swimming in self-loathing and self-pity. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. In, in, in no way is he talking about having dark emotions toward the life that God has given you. Well, Then what is he talking about? What does he mean by saying that we must hate our lives? This is an idiomatic way to speak of what you demonstrate preference towards. What you actually live for. Not what you say you live for but what you actually live for. Do you live for this life? For self? For the now time? Or do you live for Christ? For eternity? Does your life demonstrate a love for this world and yourself? Or for Christ? You get a sense of how he's using this language when you compare Luke 14 with Matthew 10. 
In both of these parallel passages, Jesus is addressing the same thing with regard to family. Listen to what he says in Luke 14. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those are hard words. Compare that with Matthew chapter 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So he's saying the same thing. Jesus is not saying you literally need to hate your family, obviously. That would be a violation of the fifth commandment. But he is saying that one's affections and one's preference and purpose all need to be centered on him over and above everything else, even your own spouse and children. If you live for your family or for yourself or for this world, you are not his disciple. And you will lose your life. The very life that you're trying to hang on to and that you're living for, you will lose. If you love your life, you will lose it. But if you hate it, meaning you, you regard it without preference, meaning your focus is not on self, but on Christ, then you will keep it for eternal life. I mean, when you really just think about this, this is not, this is not some... Gnostic, secret, spiritual knowledge that Jesus is imparting here. This is actually just the nature of this fallen world. It's actually logical. And our hearts deceive us so much that we're just often blind to it. I mean, just think about the guy who lives for his work. He finds all of his purpose and identity wrapped up in what he does. Well, at the end of the day, he is going to die. His job is going to end. And no matter how successful he was, he will have nothing to show for it in eternity. What, what are you going to say? Well, look, Lord, I, I know I neglected your word and your son and your people, but I built a great business. I'm betting few people actually get to the end of their lives and wish they'd spent more time in the office. We're on the other end of the spectrum. I have seen couples, particularly mothers, whose lives and marriages are wrecked when they become empty nesters. Because it is then that it's been revealed that they have made their entire identity wrapped up, not in Christ, but in family and children, which sadly does not last either. Our families are a wonderful gift from God, a wonderful stewardship that we are to love well for the glory of Christ, but we only have them for a temporary time. Everything in this life is temporary. And if we, if, if, if we love what is temporary we, and live for what is temporary, we will lose it. You cannot hold on to anything in this life except for Christ. He is the one eternal reality in your life. 
And our love for Him is to make everything else look like hatred by comparison. Sadly, that is, that is not the reception that Jesus received from His own people. I mean, just think of the context in which He's making the statement. It's all been building towards this. The, the Jews over and over throughout this book have proven themselves to only be interested in Christ for what He could do for the, the miracles, or for the food that he provided, for his power on display. They wanted to leverage him and his power for their own gain in this life. And even the triumphal entry was not really a praising of Christ for who he is and because they believed him to be worthy of worship, but it was whipped up excitement for what they thought he could provide them, a revolution. And to make things worse, the leaders of his own people were so concerned and focused on maintaining their positions of power and prestige in this world that they were willing to murder Christ in order to keep what they truly loved, which is this world. It's in that context that Jesus makes this declaration. Whoever loves his life will lose it. That was a warning and a promise to the people who loved their lives more than they loved the giver of life. What about you? Are you here thronging after Christ merely for what He can provide? Hoping that proximity to Him and His people will somehow improve your lot in this life? Or do you love Christ to the effect that He steals the focus of your heart above everything else. Is He your purpose and identity? Or is it something else in this world? It's an important question to wrestle with. But Jesus is not done here. Look at what He said, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You will notice that this is not an option. He's, he's not here talking about what is optimal. He's not talking about the higher life in Christ. This is not second stage Christianity. This is what the Christian life is all about. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. These are the same words that Jesus issued to Philip in chapter 1. And we know from the, the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, that these are the words of invitation that Jesus issued to all of His disciples. Jesus calls us all now with the words of, follow me. That is the summons to discipleship. Follow me. The question is, where is He going? Well, he's going in the same direction now that he was years earlier when he first called his disciples and said this. He's days away from his crucifixion and he's on the same path. He's going to the Father through the cross. He's going to glory through suffering. He has been on the Calvary Road carrying his cross the entire time. A death march. And he calls us to follow him, to join him in the same death march. 
to die with him. This is why he said in Luke chapter 9, in, in the parallel passage, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I imagine when he first spoke those words, his disciples were scratching their heads. They had no idea that in a short amount of time they would watch Jesus literally carry his cross on the way to be crucified and murdered. Talk about an illustration coming to life. That is the path that Jesus has cut for us all. He blazed a trail through suffering to get to glory. And he calls us to take up our crosses daily and to follow him. That means that each day we are to make a decision to follow him on the Calvary road. That each day that we, we die to live living for ourselves. We die to living for our sin. We die to living for this world. And rather we choose to follow Christ in the path of obedience. And rather than living for what we are sure to lose in this age, we are living for what we cannot lose in the next age. And as we do, He promises that we will be where He is. In fact, that is our true status now. As his people, we are seated with him in victory and glory. As Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's our status. And that's how we are to live. Following Christ, carrying our crosses, denying ourselves, knowing that our lives are hidden with Christ in God and setting our minds on eternal things. Here's the ironic part. We've all heard the saying that, oh, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. That is utter nonsense and it's contradictory to what the Bible calls us to do in fact the reality is the only way to be of any earthly good is to be a heavenly minded person those who are the most loving the most giving of themselves the most concerned about souls the most willing to share the gospel the most willing to deny themselves the pleasures of this world for the sake of others, the most willing to sacrifice their time and resources, the most willing to risk for the sake of the kingdom, the most willing to endure scorn for what they believe, are those who are the most heavenly-minded people. Those are the ones who are truly on the Calvary road, following Christ looking to glory, and actually serving Him with their lives. Those are the ones doing the most earthly good. By contrast, those who are the most protective of their time and their resources and reputation and everything else in their life are earthly-minded people living for themselves and this world. 
and they are not truly serving Christ. They are not heavenly-minded or earthly good. As Jesus says, no one truly serves him except those who follow him on this death march, dying daily, denying self, taking up your cross. And those who do that, when they come to the end of their lives, they do so with joy, knowing that their reward is coming. What they have been living for is almost here, and they don't fear death because they've been preparing for it their entire lives. As Spurgeon once said, no, no man will find it difficult to die who died every day. He would have practiced it so often that he would only have to die but once more. Like the singer who has been through all of his rehearsals and is perfect in his part and has but to pour forth the notes once for all and be done. Just as Christ paradoxically received glory and life through death, through the cross, so we paradoxically receive glory and life through death, through the cross that we take up daily. See, the reality is Christ died for us. How can we not live for Him knowing that glory is coming? And that's exactly what He's promising here. Look back at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Think about those words. Let that sink in for a minute. For the one who serves Christ, the Father will honor him. What could be more glorious than that? I mean, have you ever considered that when you get to heaven, you will be honored by the Father? The God of the universe, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the one who is infinitely holy and glorious in all of his perfections, the creator of all things, the God of glory will honor you because you served his Son. There is nothing more glorious than that. Church, no matter what you are going through, no matter what curveball providence may throw you, if you want to serve Christ and not be crushed by the disappointments and the surprises of, of life, then get your eyes off of yourself, off of your circumstances or off of what you do or do not have in this world. And get your eyes onto Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Take up your cross and follow Him on the Calvary Road. Are you going to suffer? Guaranteed. Guaranteed. But no matter what kind of suffering you go through, when you do so entrusting yourself to the goodness of God and continuing to follow Christ, even in the valley, you will find His promises to be true. That He will never leave you nor forsake you. And God will honor you 
for your service to his son. He will honor you with a crown of righteousness and an inheritance that is beyond all comparison. In fact, I want to leave you with Paul's familiar words from Romans chapter 8. Another reminder for us all. Romans 8, 12, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Christ set the pattern. Suffering that leads to glory. Suffering now. Oh, but glory later. It's coming. And it's more sure than anything else in your life, more sure than the rising of the sun. Glory is coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these great and precious promises that we have in Christ. Thank you. That suffering is not the end, but it is working in us a glory that is to be revealed at the last time. Lord, help us to suffer well. Help us to entrust our souls to your goodness, to your Son, as we seek to serve him with our lives, as we seek to love his people for his glory for his exaltation. Lord, we want to be good stewards of this life that you've given us. We need your grace. We need your spirit to walk that out. Please pour it out upon us, Lord. Give us the grace we need to live lives that are pleasing to you. I pray this in Jesus' name.